We're going to be in Acts 13. If you don't know, we are teaching through the book of Acts. Uh, Wednesday, we kind of hit what we don't hit today. You're welcome to that. Um, let me ask you a question. Do you guys know about sports drafting? Yeah? So NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, they look throughout the year at certain players and then they grab them to put their team together to hopefully win championships. I think what we're seeing in Acts, and we've got some glimpses of some guys, God's putting a team together that he's gonna win with. And the team that he puts together is pretty unique. So we're gonna see that team, we're gonna talk about the team, and we're gonna talk about what that means for us. So Acts 13, verse one. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we meet this crew, Barnabas, we've met him before, right? He's a Jack Levite, supposed to be ministering in Israel, lived on a party island called Cyprus. So he's the pastor's kid that went south. Like, forget this thing, I'm gonna party. He's the life of the party, people love him. Happy, encouraging, complimenting, always just has friends around him, great guy. And then he heads back one time to Jerusalem and while he's there, someone shares Jesus with him. He gets saved, sent to this city of Antioch and he becomes an elder in the church. First guy, second guy on the team. Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger is the Latin for black. He's an African. And so he somehow, maybe a business deal, he heads up to Antioch, is doing business there. And while he's in Antioch, he noticed on Sundays, like the church was, or the city was divided up into these ethnic groups. And in that division, people just stayed in their walls. But then all of a sudden on a Sunday, he notices people climbing walls and coming together and all going to this one place. He goes, I gotta go check this out. He goes down there. And they're there, it's a place of worship, but there's no idol. He's like, what's the deal here? Who are you worshiping? And someone shares with Simeon about Jesus and he gets saved and he becomes an elder in the church. Thirdly, it's this guy named Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in modern day Libya, Northern Africa. Lucius means red. He's a red dude from Africa. So I read a bunch of commentaries that everyone's like, oh, we don't know what it means. We don't know. He's the red dude from Africa. I don't know. I don't know what it means. <laughs> He's the misfit who finally found his fit in this church. And he throws in and he becomes an elder at this church. And then we have Manaean. Uh, easier just to call him Manny. I call him Manny. So you got Manny. Josephus tells us that he was the half-brother, or the, excuse me, the adopted brother of Herod the king. So he grew up in the palace, right? He is famous. 
paparazzi chases him, right? He's like Justin Bieber. They're like, dude, weren't you just driving Ferraris and getting Deweys? And now you're an elder in the church? He's like, yeah, I'm a believer. <laughs> Come on. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, I had to do it. I'm so sorry. It's the first time I've said that at Edgewater. And that should be the last. Okay. It will. <laughs> oh. And you've got Saul. Saul's a Pharisee. He's the Amish guy. He's got a beard. He says thee and thou. He gets no cultural joke. Like if I said believer to him, he'd be like, um, don't you mean believer? What are you talking about, sir? Right? No TV, wakes up at 4 a.m., no caffeine. Makes his own clothing out of tent material because that's what he builds. So he's hardcore. Right? Just look at this group. How crazy is that group? It's not birds of feather flocking together. You got different continents and different kinds of people and different backgrounds and different, even religious kind of stuff. And they're all to come together and they become the leadership crew that God says, that's my crew, that's my crew. And these guys believe we're gonna change the world. The culture looks at them and they're like, dude, you guys couldn't change a light bulb, look at you. And guess what they do? They change the world. Antioch becomes the center of Christianity. The cradle of Christian theology, it's, it's called. It becomes the sending place. It dominates the rest of the book of Acts. It becomes the main place. Jerusalem now takes second place. These guys believe they can change the world. Now, how? I'm gonna give you three reasons. Classic Baptist preaching, three-point sermon. Here's how. Number one, you wanna change your world? You wanna change this world? Number one, it's the crew. It's this diverse crew of people. Your friends can, emphasis on can, can push you to be a world changer, but not necessarily. It all depends on your crew. So let me tell you one of the dangers that comes with making friends. Here's one of the dangers. Some people make their friends based on what that friend will give them. So they have to have a certain kind of friend, a friend that's cooler than them, hipper than them, more beautiful than them, more wealthy than them, more popular than them, because they feel like when I'm around them, it elevates me and I become more of those things. So they're hyper-selective in the friendships that they choose. If that's you, know you are now stirring a recipe for depression because you're outsourcing your value and your worth to other people. And there'll come a time when those other people hurt you and then you get depressed over it. It's very dangerous. Here's my advice. I talk to young people. Now they're like, I can't make friends. I tell them two things. Number one, find your sufficiency in Jesus. Because when you do that, you have a confidence that is attractive. You don't come to relationships needy and clingy and desperate trying to get something from them. You come to relationships full already. Hey, I've got the best. I got the best already. And there is something dynamic and attractive about that. That's number one. Number two, pray that Jesus brings the friends that you need. 
and then trust him when he does. Not choosing based on these things, but Jesus, you bring the friends I need, right? And it may, not be the, it may not be cool. Oh no, they're not cool. Just think about Manny and Saul, right? Justin Bieber and the Amish guy, right? Tattoo guy, top hat guy. I mean, how weird is that? And yet they develop this bond and this relationship and they lead this church together brilliantly because they trust. They trust God. You brought him. You put this team together. I'm okay with that, okay? I think gospel-centered people should be, when it comes to friendships, always widening, enlarging our tents. How can we get more people into relationship with me, with us? And here's my warning for you. As you age, if you're old in here, which I've always thought, old was always 15 years older than me. See, when I was 15, old people were 30. When I got 30, no, old people are 45. Now that I'm 46, old people are 61. It's just gonna keep rolling up, right? But I'm actually old now. My kids remind me of it daily. You're old, dad. Okay. Right? As we age, especially men, we make less and less friends. Every study shows it. I don't need a study though. I just look at us, right? We come, we sit in the same exact seat. This is my seat. Don't you sit in my seat. Tuck the same four people and then we leave, right? Think about who is the last person, when was the last person that you made a good relationship with? How long has it been? These guys are in their 30s or 40s, right? From all these different places, Africa, Cyprus and Ireland, Israel, Tarsus, and they're close together and now they become new friends at 30 and 40, and they build this crew that's awesome. That's the first thing, this crew. Be careful of being selective. Secondly, when it comes to friends, be careful of what I call the echo chamber. If we are really honest about the friends we select, they're very much like us. They think like us, they talk like us, same political views as us, same party as us, right? We choose people that are like us so that when we talk to them, they tell us the same things and we're like, hey, we're right. That's not this crew at all. I think it's very important to be pushing against the echo chamber that so many of us fall into. They got prophets in there, visionaries. They got teachers in there, people that have information, right information. So they got this wide net of influence in their life. And it's that wide net that starts to lead them and guide them and poke them and prod them because you will be greatly influenced by your friendships. Do you know that? Proverbs, which is our book of wisdom. Chapter one, the first shot over the bow for Solomon's son is this. Hey buddy, hey bunny, don't run with a bunch of fools, right? Don't make your crew a bunch of fools. Now, I do think every crew, crew it needs, needs at least one fool, right? Who's gonna do the dangerous stuff? Who's gonna try stuff that no one should? Like Carolina Reaper, hottest pepper in the world. Get the fool, come here. Buddy, eat this, right? It's fun, you gotta have one fool, but not all fools. And you have diversity right there. And what Solomon says in that text is this, listen, what your friends do, you do. If they're swift to shed blood, so will you. If they're robbing people, so will you. So be very careful about the friends you 
get. We should, as gospel-centered people, be constantly praying, Jesus, bring around me the friends that I need, not the friends that I think I need. The ones that will stretch me prophetically, teaching, ethnically, culturally. Lord, bring those friends around me, like this group right here. And I'll mention one area, because of where we're at in Grants Pass, we don't have a lot of this, but here's the one area I think that we gotta be careful of. It's age. Most of us have friends that are a little bit younger or a little bit older, and that's it. That's the majority of people. We tend to stick with people that are kind of in our generation, right? I don't think it's healthy. Because if you get a bunch of old people together, you get what I call stagnation. Whereas, hey, we tried that in 68. It didn't work. <laughs> don't you think something has changed in like 50 years? Nope. Not trying it again. Okay, you get stagnation, right? And there's this thing as we age that we, we start to look back on previous stages of life and we think, man, those guys are fools, right? It happens quick. You graduate out of middle school, into high school. You look back at kids in middle school and what do you think? Fools. They do not know a thing. Wait till they get to high school. Then they've got it all figured out. <laughs> then you graduate from high school and you go to college and you look back at kids in high school and you're like, fools. They don't have a clue. Wait till they graduate from high school and have to go to college. Then they'll know what it's all about. And then you graduate from college, you get a job. You're like, oh, college was easy. Wait till you graduate and you gotta get a job, man. Then you'll have it figured out, fools. Then you get married, you have some kids and you're like, oh, you ain't seen nothing. Now you have a wife and kids, man. Oh, <laughs> then you got it figured out. And then you got the 56 year old guy looking at me going, wait till your kids are gone. And you got an empty nest. Then you got it figured out. And there's one 80 year old dude in here who's like, you're all fools. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Chronological snobbery. That's what I call that. We gotta be careful, right? And then young people, they're like, hey, I'll solve the world's problems with an app and my iPhone. I'm like, really? You're gonna plant corn with that and solve malaria? I mean, come on. But what you need is you need both, right? Read 1 John 2, it's brilliant. Where John just goes through the family, he's like, hey, sons do this and men, and, and men do this and fathers do this. And when you put them together, it's strong. But isolated, they're weak. I think there needs to be a young married couples group where you talk about the stuff you're going through, but make sure in that group, there's one mature, godly couple that's gonna sit and listen and be like, don't do what that dude just said. He's a fool. That's divorce right there. There's one person that needs to say that because you need some input from age. Like there's brilliance to that when you break that stuff down. I don't agree with like affinity groups. I think you end up getting into an echo chamber and it's wrong. So when you look at a crew and you're, you're really saying, you're saying, first, I wanna find my sufficiency in Jesus. And then Jesus, you bring the friends that I need that will stretch me prophetically, teaching those kind of things. I love 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul sends Timothy to the church at Corinth, a hard, hard church. And Timothy's a young dude. And Paul says, hey, 
I'm sending my young guy to you. Make him at ease and give him some peace. Don't be hard on him. He's a young guy. Give him a shot. Give him a chance. Help him, grow him, mature him. That's what we're supposed to be doing as we're older and we have maturity. We're supposed to help the young and allow them to stretch and, and move and be at peace and ease. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. You'll grow. How's your crew? Good crew? Echo crew? Bad crew. Matt, I don't even know how to make friends. All right, men, we have this thing coming up, June 1st through the 3rd, called Wild. The goal of it is gospel-centered friendships. That's the whole goal. Sign up, go, make some friends, right? Make friends that are different than you. If you drive up there in an RV, right, find the guy that's up there sleeping in the dirt in a sleeping bag and become his friends or his friend. And if you're up there in a dirt sleeping bag, find the dude with the RV and say, can I stay in here with you? <laughs> it's cold out here. <laughs> right? Gals, we've got mops. Mothers of preschoolers, great place. We have as well, um, Mondays are open, right? Make a crew that will challenge you and grow you and stretch you. That's what they do, number one. Number two, I think their secret to changing the world it's church. Look at verse two. While they were worshiping, the word worshiping there is where we get our Greek word liturgy. Liturgy is a fancy way of saying church stuff. While they're about church stuff to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They're just about the daily, weekly, monthly church stuff in Antioch. Praising, preaching, serving, doing whatever. And during that somehow, we'll try to look at this on Wednesday a little bit more. Somehow during that process, there's a word that is, hey, these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, separate these two guys for a work I have for them. I love that. I love church. And I'm not saying that because I'm up here. You can ask my kids, when we travel somewhere, I am looking for churches to go to. And not always the big churches. I like new churches and I just like church. I like seeing like what's happening here. So a couple of years ago, we went to Cannon Beach and Cannon Beach is small. So I kind of looked online like, where's the church? And they had just planted revitalizing a church called Cannon Beach Bible Church. So I'm like, hey, let's go there. So I get my family all loaded up and we go over there and we come to the church. It was seven people. We doubled the church. I brought my seven. There are 14. They're like, church growth is working, man. We've doubled. Yeah. <laughs> it was so fun. Afterward, they had a potluck. I didn't have a lot of luck with that one. But uh, met everybody in the church. I remembered every person's name in that entire church. It was so amazing. Met a, a couple from England who were so awesome, an engaged couple that worked at a retreat center. It was totally fun. And it was visiting small churches that God inspired me to do this. What we do here, we pray. Because what I noticed was this. In a small church, they, they would like stop the service and they'd be like, uh, anybody have any prayer requests? Be like, raise their hand. Um, yeah, I got a prayer for this. Like right, and I'm like, hmm, that's cool. That's cool. How do we do that when you get a little bit bigger? 
how do you incorporate this very important thing, this liturgy, how do you incorporate that? And that's how we started prayer, is inspired. I think God spoke to me. Just being involved in church stuff. But it also says they were fasting. Twice it says it. Fasting. Do you fast? Don't raise your hand because you'll ruin it. God says, if you fast, don't let me know. Do you fast? Studying this text, I was very convicted because I used to fast. I don't really fast anymore. Hmm. Here it's tied into hearing from God's spirit a direction for ministry. So is it a formula, Matt? If we fast, we'll hear from God? I don't think so. I don't think there's formulas in the Bible, but I do think fasting does this. It centers your mind and it says, I wanna hear from God. And it's so important for me to hear from God, I'm not gonna eat. Because we are, there's a competition for voices right now. There's tons, there's culture, there's family, there's all these voices that vie for our attention. Social media, whatever it is. But the Bible says this, it's Psalm 19. God's constantly speaking. What I think is we're so tuned into all these other voices that we don't hear God's voice. But when we fast, what we say is, God, we wanna tune in and hear from you. And maybe just maybe that actually gets our attention and we hear from God. It's not just the New Testament, it's also the Old Testament. There's a story in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat. City is surrounded by this massive army, 100 to one odds. Jehoshaphat's gonna get creamed. So he says this, it's a classic line. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And he declares to the whole city, let's pray and let's fast. So they pray and they fast and they get a word from God, what to do? So Jehoshaphat's like, okay, do we send out the army? He's like, no. Send out the Navy? No, you're not close to an ocean. Send out the Air Force? Mm -mm. Marines? Then who, God, what are we doing? He says, send out the worship team. Really? Yep. Guitar and all? Guitar and all, send them out. I love that. Now, whenever there's a difficult situation, I'm like, John Micah, you gotta do it. Go, bro, I'm sorry, it's, it's biblical. I found a story. The answer came when they were praying and fasting. Maybe you need a word from the Lord. Maybe this is for you. Pray and fast. But more than that, are you involved in the liturgy, the, the practice of church, community, service? Are you involved in what people are doing? So many times, I have been directed by God simply by having a conversation with somebody in church, about church, around church, just in the liturgy of church. I'm plugged in. And because of that, God speaks and communicates to me. So that's number two. There's in the liturgy. And number three, they're courageous. So verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Remember Antioch. It's the happening church. It's booming, it's bustling, it's the mega church. It, it's getting, people are just flocking there. They're coming. They wanna see it. 
Saul, who for 10 years had been trying to find where he fit, Damascus, no. Jerusalem, no. Tarsus, no. Finally lands in Antioch. Oh, I got a fit. Yes. This is my place. And then God says, take your top two dudes, your executive pastor Barnabas and your teaching pastor Saul and send them away. The church, verse three, has to fast and pray about that. Really? Oh no. They fast and pray and they do it. Barnabas and Saul, who finally found their niche, their place to fit, their crew, they gotta go. Let me ask you this. If you heard definitively that God was asking you to leave your city, leave your church, leave your friends, leave your job and go be a missionary somewhere far away, who here would be stoked on that? Raise your hand. Very few. The eight o'clock, goose egg. I'm like, come on, it's eight o'clock, man. We don't wanna be inconvenienced, that's why we're here. I don't wanna look for a parking spot. I don't wanna look for a seat. I'm at the eight o'clock. Don't ask me about being inconvenienced. (laughs) Now, why is that? Why would so few of us say, I don't really wanna do that. Or I want to do that. Why are we so tentative to do what this church did right here? That's it. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we give our life 100% to God, he will ask us to do something that will make our life a bummer. That's what we really believe. If I truly wholeheartedly followed God, then my life's gonna stink. That's underneath it. If you really dig, that's what we believe. So when God says something like that, we're like, oh no, I do not wanna do that. Do you know that's common? in the Bible. Moses, burning bush, take off your shoes. And then God says, Moses, I got a job for you. What does Moses say? No, I I, I don't think I can do that. Um, No, they won't believe me when I go down there. Okay, fine, take your staff, throw it on the ground. It turns into a snake, now pick it back up. All right, now they'll believe you. Well, I I have this speech impediment problem, God. When I talk, I kind of stutter. I I don't know, you know what God does? He doesn't do the, like the, hey, you're good enough, you're smart enough. Remember that third grade speech you gave? That was so good, do that again. You know what God says? Huh? I made your mouth, you stuttering fool, get after it. That's in the Hebrew, you gotta dig to find that translation. It's kinda <laughs> tucked in there a little bit. <laughs> Moses is like, no. Jeremiah, when he's called, you know what he does? He cries, <laughs> I don't wanna. Ezekiel. He's called, chapter three. It says he sat for seven days astonished. Just, what's wrong, Ezekiel? I gotta be a prophet. Man, I'm so depressed. Jonah, he gets called, what's he do? He's like stoked. He's like, Nineveh that way? I'm going this way. It takes a whale of an effort to get him back involved. (laughs) Two today, right? (laughs) Believer and whale, man. (laughs) Smoking it today. Right? This is this common thing. If I really give my life to Jesus 100% and I lose control, I do exactly what God wants me to do, life's gonna be a bummer. 
I don't want to do that. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Matt Heverly. You can throw my name on that list. I'm the most reluctant minister ever. And I've known for a long time that God had a call for me to do something. I can remember at eight years of age, going to a very dysfunctional little church, hyper-legalistic, like they would get there and say, hey, no TV, don't wear those kind of clothes, we're boycotting them, don't use that kind of toothpaste, we're boycotting them, don't watch TV, don't celebrate holidays, hyper-legalistic. But as an eight-year-old in that hyper-legalistic church, I'm looking at this guy named Floyd who's preaching, and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, one day I'll do that. One day I'll stand up in front of a group of people and I'll tell them all the things that they cannot do. It will be awesome. I will find new things in the Bible and, right? And then I ran from it. So in high school, I have this, this it's like a senior thing where they asked all the seniors at Grants Pass these questions and you fill them out. And uh, it was like, one of them was, what will you be doing in five years? What do you see yourself doing? What's your five-year plan? And I read some of my buddies and some people and they're like, well, I'll be working at Peace Corps and I'll be over here and doing like really cool things. You know what mine was? Making lots of money. That's it. Yeah. So I went to Oregon State, came an engineer, thought I was gonna do the, make a lot of money. I'm gonna do that, man. I'm gonna make lots of money. Came back that summer, I graduated in 95. Had a job opportunity at General Motors in Detroit. But I'm like, oh. I'm a West Coaster, man. I cannot do Detroit. I'm sorry. So I was like trying to toying with that idea. Like, uh, could I do it for like a year or something? And on a Monday morning, I got a call from a buddy. He's like, hey, there's this thing called Wilderness Trails and we're doing this thing tomorrow. Can you come with us? Now this is before Google when you could be like talking on the phone and like Googling something at the same time. Oh yeah, Wilderness Trails. Oh yeah, they're cool. That's awesome, right? I'm like, what is Wilderness Trails? He's like, oh, it's this group that takes these teenagers that are out of like juvie jail and they get out of juvie jail for a week and you take them up into the Sky Lakes wilderness and you hike with them all around the Sky Lakes wilderness. And I said, why would you want to do that? Oh my goodness, that like, sounds like a horror movie. Like everyone's slaughtered by teens in the Sky Lake wilderness. Like, ah! <laughs> to make a long story short, I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go. So I go and it was hard, man. I broke up fights. I had to give kids Ritalin and Prozac and I was a cook and a mentor and a coach and you know I was a parent and a parole officer and man I was like ah and I was ready to be done after five days but those five days were alive like wow that was it was hard that was good hmm hmm and then about two years after that this guy came running up to me I'm looking, I'm like, what is the deal? He gets closer and I recognize him. It's one of the kids that was on that trip with me from the Pitchford Boys Home up in Roseburg when it was open. And he just came up and gave me a big giant hug. He's like 19 at that time. He's like, I'm out of the Pitchford Boys Home. I'm going to a church now and I wanna be, I wanna be a pastor. And I was just so like, oh, wow. I thought that's life right there. So I'm like, okay, fine, God. I'll teach the Bible, that's what I'll do. Don't, don't send me on the mission field or something like, I don't want to go somewhere and eat bugs. I'll teach the Bible. So I go to the school of ministry to learn how to teach the Bible. And I go there at the end of the school of ministry, I get called in and they're like, hey, we got an opportunity for you. I'm like, what is it? 
go on the mission field in Vanuatu. I'm like, that sounds a lot like I don't want to, all right? That's what that sounds like. Do they eat bugs over there? No, but they eat giant bats. Oh, it's even worse. And I prayed and I fasted. And I went to Vanuatu. Hard, hard. Best year of my single life. Living in a grass hut, no running water, no electricity, hanging out with this group of men, knee vans, gardening, cooking, playing, fishing, studying the Bible. Best year of my single life. So I come back, I'm like, okay. Edgewater starts, make a long story short. Teaching the Bible, okay, God, I'm doing it. And about four years ago, thrust on us was foster care. I'd have never done foster care. But we were, I was, felt like I was in a corner, like, ugh, there's nowhere I can go. All right, fine, yes. I really got seven in my house already. We're going to nine people in a three-bedroom home. Man, what is this, Afghanistan, God? Come on. But then we do it. They come in. My wife and my kids were so much more on board, but I'm reluctant. And then I start to get in this rhythm of, wow, this is amazing to see Terrain and Arrow, these two kids that really Satan's plan for them was, was gonna be really bad, super bad. And for us to be able to invest in them and then have our friends say, we're gonna adopt them. And for them now to be just loved on and blessed. And, and now their, their path is so different. And we, we gotta play a little part in that. So I said, okay, God, yeah. Foster care is good. I, 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 we'll do that. And then I get a call in August from DHS. Hey, we got a kind of hard one. Oh, really? Actually, my wife took the call. We got a kind of hard one. What is it? It's a three-year-old boy and his newborn baby brother who's addicted to heroin. And I thought, oh, no. No, I'm not doing, no, I'm 45 years old. I'm not doing a drug baby. I know how hard they are. No, I'm not. God, pick on somebody else for crying out loud. How much do you want from me? Right? That's how I felt like, you can't squeeze anymore. <laughs> and my wife, who's so kind and generous, is like, we gotta do it. And my kids said, we gotta do it. So kicking and screaming, I said, okay. And so Hunter and Harry came into our home. And I cannot tell you how much work my wife did. He was like no other child. With heroin and that, his, his immune system is not the same. He was sick for months and months and months. He would sleep at most about two hours. So for about eight months, my wife is up every two hours. All the, he had to be held. He, had, he needed to be held. He needed that comfort. He needed to feel that. There's something in that. And for eight months, my wife, I, I call her the rocket booster that got Harry out of the gravity of heroin and got him to thrive because he thrived, man. She just put it in for him. I got the joy, to be honest with you. Like he has this laugh. I can't replicate it. So I actually have a little video of it. Here's little baby Harry laughing. <laughs> Harry's laughing. Oh, it's so crazy. Harry, 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 Harry. 
buddy. <laughs> Hi, buddy. Hi. <laughs> She's ready for it. So I'd come home from work and I would come into the house and he did this army crawl for a long time and then he started crawling. And when he would see me, he would start that laugh. And then he would just crawl right over to me. And he'd put his little hand up. He'd just hold up his hand to me and I would swoop him up. And he would nestle his little head, actually he's pretty big, his big head right into the <laughs> crook of my neck. And he just grabbed my heart. Like I, I can't explain. I'm better because Harry was in my home, 100%. It's been very hard. It's because my wife is here and I know she's crying. My point is simple. Every time I've said yes to God, I've been better. Every single time. God's never a debtor. Every time I've said, okay, okay. Been hard, no doubt about it. Acts is gonna be hard. We're gonna see it's super hard. Super hard. But it's better. My life, I am I am the kind of person I want to be because of wilderness trails, because of Vanuatu, because of Edgewater, because of foster care, because of Harry and Hunter, because of Train and Arrow. I'm the person I want to be because of those things. Every time you say yes to God, your life gets better. It might be hard, no doubt about it, but it'll always be better. And I think the only way that we can ever say yes to God is to have our fear taken care of. And 1 John 4 says this, perfect love casts out all fear. That when you and I come to the table, what we're experiencing is Jesus Christ's perfect love for you. So that when he asks you to step out and take a risk, because church is not to be a parking lot, it's to be a, it's to be a rocket launch. We're supposed to come here and fuel up. We'll actually talk about this next week and launch out of here. That's what church is supposed to be. That the fear that, oh, we're gonna miss out on something or God doesn't have our best in mind. That fear is supposed to be taken care of. We eat and we drink and we know his perfect love for us. And then we can say like Isaiah, here I am, send me. That Jesus went through hard things, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross that what God has is always joy on the other side. Matt, you don't understand. Matt, you don't understand what I have for you. Trust me, trust me. And every time that I have, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. That's why they could do this in Acts 13. Hard to send off their top dudes, hard to leave what they love, but they knew it's gonna be better. Father, This day,
I pray that Edgewater would be a place where gospel friendships are fostered. That we are deliberate in making sure that we do not form an echo chamber. For there's not prophets and teachers able to correct and shape, inspire and change us. I pray that that we'd be a group of people that are plugged into each other, into the liturgy of the body of Christ. I pray that we'd be courageous. Fix our fear, Lord. Help us to trust you more. Help us to see that your plans for us are plans to bring us to a glorious end. That's your plan. And we can trust you because you gave us your best in your son. So may we eat and may we drink courage today. And may we launch into the city that we love, holding up our hands saying, here I am, send me. We pray this in your son's name, amen.